Welcome to the podcast. This episode is the last episode of the fall 2022 semester. Uh, we've got um, uh, finals and Christmas break and New Year's. So uh, fear not, we're not going anywhere. Um, we're just going to take a few weeks off and you can look for new episodes in 2023. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Reichert, who is an assistant professor of moral theology at St. John's Seminary. She earned her doctorate in sacred theology and moral theology from the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross in Rome, and has also studied at the University of Navarre in Spain, Fordham University, and Franciscan University of Steubenville. Uh, she's published widely, and her most recent publication just this year came out, Aquinas and the Gifts, Contemporary Contributions to the Place of the Gifts of the Holy Spirit in the Christian Moral Life, published by Manalis Theologici. First of all, Dr. Reichert, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Stuart. I'd like to have a conversation uh, about a topic that often gets ignored today because it is often seen as a, as a judgmental word or an oppressive word, or, and that word is sin. Uh, specifically, um, talking about um, how different frameworks in moral theology view sin. Uh, but before we get to those different frameworks, uh, let's sort of define our terms. So... How should we think about what is sin, and, and maybe more importantly, what sin is not? All right, so I love um, turning to the catechism as a starting point, and the catechism in its section on sin has multiple paragraphs, so we aren't going to go into those. I want to pick out one of the definitions that the catechism proposes for sin, because it turns to St. Augustine and St. Thomas, I think two of the greats in the Western tradition, um, and use that as a jumping-off point for our conversation today. Sure. And so the definition it takes from St. Augustine, is that sin is a word, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. So some sort of act, and that act can be also an omission, but a word, right. deed, thought, action contrary to the eternal law. Um, and so what, what, does that, what is it not then? I mean, if we say uh, contrary to the, to the law... Um, that that's a pretty big statement. I mean, that could be anything. And of course, that doesn't mean uh, sort of secular civil law. So so w what exactly are we talking about here? Well, I think it actually can include secular civil law. So it's mm. going to depend on how you understand the moral law. And so if it's okay, we can jump on into Let's these two ways of doing it. So that's why I picked this definition, because if you're viewing sin as anything that goes against the moral law, how you understand the moral law is radically going to affect how you understand sin. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, there are many proposals out there and many different ethical theories of how do we know what right or wrong is or what yeah. kind of rules make up the moral law. But I think among Catholics and even non-Catholics, I think we can identify two basic frameworks. And so this is both, I think, the framework I'm going to propose first, I think, is how most non-Catholics understand Catholic moral theology. Right. But I also think it's how most Catholics understand moral theology. And so I think the two basic frameworks we can divide is the question of whether or not the moral law stems from God's will mm -hmm. or whether or not the moral law stems from God's wisdom. And so if we begin, if it's okay, so if we look at a framework where the moral law stems from God's will, mm -hmm. And so what this looks like is basically the idea that we know that God created the world, and in addition to creating the world and human beings, he put us in the world, he created two other places. He created heaven and hell, the good place and the bad place. And when each of us dies, we are going to go to one of these two places. We are going to go to the good place or to the bad place. The good place is where all of our wildest dreams come <laughs> true, big party in the sky. Right. And the bad place is where we spend all of eternity wailing and grinding our teeth while on fire. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it's a pretty easy, no-brainer question, right? Where do I want to go? I want to go to the good place. Yeah. So then the follow-up question is, how do I get to the good place? And the answer is actually quite simple. God gave us a list of rules. And if we follow these rules well enough... We get to punch our ticket to the big party in the sky, and if we don't follow the rules well, we go to the bad place. And so what are these rules? Well, he wrote them down. He put 10 of them on some tablets for us, plus a few hundred or thousand more in the Old and New Testament and the right. documents of the magisterium. Now, if we ask why these are the rules, the answer we get is 
because God said so, mm-hmm. right? Why did God tell us that we can eat of all of these trees in the garden, but not this tree over here? Just because, right? God said so. He's God. He gets to decide to do this because he is all powerful and he gets to do what he wants. So we stop asking questions and we say, okay, we'll follow the rules. But here's the problem is that these rules are a real drag. So as a priest friend of mine once put it, back when he was an atheist, he said, I viewed the world like this. Everything good in life either makes you fat or is condemned by the Catholic Church. (laughs) Right, so we know that these rules are miserable. Nobody wants to follow them. It would be way more fun to do whatever we wanted. But there's a Mm trade-off, right? So I can live this life like, all the cocaine money prostitutes I want, but then spend forever in hell. Or I can have kind of this restrictive, boring, miserable existence now, but I get the party in the sky. Right. And now, while living this life in a miserable way sounds pretty bad, hell sounds terrible, and eternity is a really long time. Right. So I'm going to try to be good. So then I try to be good, and what happens? I realize that it's really hard to be good Mm -hmm. and then i think it's fair to ask the question why is it so hard to be good it's almost like god gave me all of these desires and then commands me not to act on the very desires that he gave me Mm. and then i go to church on sunday And I have to say mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa to tell myself that it's all my fault for breaking all these rules. And at that same service, I'm told that God sent his only son to die for all of the sins that I committed to save me from this mess that he kind of created (laughs) by making me to desire all of these things and then telling me it was wrong to act on them. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm guessing most of our viewers are familiar with gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Right where you distort somebody's reality, and oftentimes what a gasli- person who's gaslighting does is they blame somebody else for their own actions. Sure. Right. So what's happening right here is like the gaslighting of the century or the gaslighting <laughs> of all eternity. Right? right. So like God like makes us feel like guilty for this messed up system that He created, and then if we want to get to the real kicker, like the worst of it all, is that we come to find out that heaven was not the big party in the sky we were promised. Mm -hmm. Heaven is actually spending all of eternity sitting around worshiping this deranged, narcissistic God surrounded by all of those judgy Christians who spent their whole lives telling us we were going to hell. Right. Now, this is pretty extreme view, right? But I think that, I think that, most, well, I think it's accurate. Right. I think that most people don't take it as far as I did in the end. But I think that if all you can say about the church's laws are because God said so, mm-hmm. and you follow that through to its logical conclusions, you end up with the view I had right here. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is what it looks like if you think that the moral law stems from God's will, like his mm-hmm. arbitrary will separated from his wisdom. And I think this is why a lot of people leave the church. So there's real practical implications to this this framework that if this is what you think and we are all sinners why wouldn't you leave the catholic church right i love watching i don't know if you've heard of the idea of deconstruction there are all these like christians especially like former christian music artists on youtube sharing their deconstruction story so these are people who were faithful christians and have come to break down all of these ideas to deconstruct the ideas they held to and so there are many issues there but so for so many of them part of their deconstruction is a deconstruction of christian moral teaching and many of them view the church's moral teaching or christian moral teaching like what i just laid out And I don't blame them for deconstructing that view. To deconstruct the framework that I just laid out Mm -hmm. is appropriate. Mm -hmm. The problem is this isn't the authentic Christian or Catholic framework. Right. Yeah, I I find that word deconstruction is used a lot more in Protestant circles, but Mm -hmm. I I think it's bleeding into the Catholic circles, and even if Catholics aren't using that word. um, So I've never been particularly comfortable with it. Um, But, I mean, just... As as we're given the gift of intellect, so I think just in general, sure that's a good thing. We should think these things through and and point out, uh, um, you know, where um, fallacies have been in in our thinking or or what has been handed on to us, whether it's in the moral life or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So, so you've been talking about a vision of moral life based on God's will. 
Should we move now on to the second part, or, or is there more to say about about that? Yeah, let me briefly move on to the other framework, mm -hmm. and then what we can do is maybe then talk about what does sin look like in this first framework, since okay. the topic of the day is sin. Great. So, to, I think, yeah, I think it's good to jump into the other framework in case we have anybody listening who's a little bit concerned <laughs> after I lay out this very kind of horrifying picture right, of morality right. to clarify that this is not the church's moral teaching. Correct. And so the statement in the catechism that I love to turn to just very simply, this is catechism number 1950, and it says, the moral law is the work of divine wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the kind of statement, like so much of the catechism, because it's really in many ways a reference tool. And so right. you have these dry, abstract statements, and they pack a lot in them. And if you don't know what's packed inside of them, you just read it and you go on. Moral law is a work of divine wisdom. Okay. okay. But this makes all the difference in the world. So we just saw a vision of what morality looks like if we think that the moral law is a product of God's arbitrary will. Mm -hmm. Because I said so in the catechism saying, no, no, no. The moral law is the work or the product of divine wisdom. And so to say something's arbitrary, again, is to say that it comes from somebody's will and that there's not reason to it. There's not logic. There is nothing else other than I said so. And to say that it comes from wisdom is to say that one can find reason or logic or wisdom in it. It may not be immediately self-evident, but it is possible to discover a logic in it. And so this is where we started at the beginning with that definition of sin as anything that goes against the eternal law. So here's where we have to understand the eternal law. And so Thomas, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here. He says the Thomas Aquinas. Yes, thank you. So Thomas Aquinas says that the eternal law is nothing other than divine wisdom ordering all things to their proper end, that is to their flourishing. And I think I'm probably going to end up using the word flourishing a lot today because I think that we can use the word beatitude, but sometimes that seems a little bit, I don't know, distant from people's reality or experience that term. And I think the term happiness, we could also use that, but it's too easily misconstrued as to that is that which is pleasing or that which mm -hmm. feels good in the moment. And so I think flourishing captures this reality well because we can understand that for, let's say, a drug addict, right? Might be happy because he's getting to do whatever he wants to do and the drugs feel good in the moment. I think that nobody would look at the drug addict and say that this person is flourishing right. as a human being. At the same time, I don't think we would look at somebody who's following all of the rules of the church but is miserable hmm. as flourishing. And so flourishing gets both of these together. We should experience this as fulfilling to us. We should experience this as somehow pleasing in a way that's maybe deeper than a simple like pleasantry of the senses. So the eternal laws, God's wisdom, ordering us to our proper end, that is to our flourishing. So it's basically saying that God has a master plan. Another quotation from the catechism that is important, I don't have the number on me, but the catechism says that creation does not spring forth complete from the creator's hands. It is in a state of journeying. And so too often, I think too many of us think that we come out at birth perfect, mm -hmm. and then we spend the rest of our life messing up that perfection that was there by sinning. Then we go to confession, we wipe the slate clean, and we're back to being perfect. So it's this static thing. I'm perfect or not perfect. It's black or white. Rather, no, God created us to grow. So just as we grow physically, our bodies, when we're born, we're also growing as a person, as a human being. And so the moral law, the eternal law, is God's plan for this growth, for our flourishing. And so that's going to include the kind of actions that are ordered to our flourishing. Mm -hmm. So if you do this kind of activity, you are going to flourish. And if you do this kind of activity that we call sin, you are not going to flourish. It's going to be the kind of activity that is not ordered to your development. So backing up a bit, when you say uh, this second framework, it comes out of understanding uh, God's uh, wisdom rather than God's will. Let's let's go a little deeper on that word wisdom. What does that mean? How is wisdom different from knowledge? Why are why is wisdom here being opposed to will? So we can't oppose wisdom and will because certainly even in this view, God wills it. Right? Mm -hmm. It's not something that happens outside of His will. <clears throat> right. So the contrast I'm making is in the first view, you have a will that is independent of wisdom. There's no reason or logic to it. There's not even love attached. I think of an example I thought of. Um, 
was I was home and I was playing with my niece and my nephews. And so the niece is the oldest of like the group of five of them. And the rest of them are all little boys. And she's very independent. And so she'd created this game for the nephews. And it was this game that was some combination of the floor is lava and freeze tag, Mm. except that she rigged all the rules in her favor. (laughs) Right. And so like she was always able to walk on the lava because she was like a fairy princess and had these magic powers Mm. and she could say time out and not be frozen whenever she wanted to. And then when anybody else was frozen or she tagged them, they had to be her servant and do whatever she wanted. And so she starts playing this game and eventually within a few minutes, the nephews figure out this game is rigged against right. us, right? We don't want to do this. Right. And so they stop playing her game. They walk away. Mm-hmm. And she comes to me crying. And she's upset that they walked away from her game. And mm. she expects me to go and punish mm. the boys yeah. for not playing her rigged game, <laughs> right? And so this is the God in that first framework, right. right? This childish God who has this rigged game and is mad when we suddenly wise up and don't play by the rules of their game. And that's not a God of love Mm -hmm. right that's like this is like university hazing to get in a fraternity right do what i want because i said so rather than a god who is guided by love and wisdom who has a plan for our flourishing this is my child like i have the words of eternal life like Mm -hmm. come and follow me and if you follow this you will have life Mm -hmm. something that you had mentioned a little earlier that i think to help clarify we need to expand on this i think it was from your quote from thomas the, the, the sort of technical word is in, in Thomistic thought and, and coming from Aristotle, that, that the teleology, that we are ordered towards something. Mm-hmm. So that God wants us to live in a certain way, again, not based out of his will, but his wisdom because he wants us to be ordered towards something. So can you go a little more deeply into this idea of Thomas's understanding that the moral life is to get us ordered towards something? What is that telos? What's that thing that we're going towards? Mm-hmm. I love this. So Thomas starts his treatment of fundamental moral theology. So you have the Summa Theologia, which is divided into three parts. So the first part is God and creation. And then the second part, he says, now that we've treated God, we need to treat man's journey to God. So that's what the second part is, which is divided into two halves. So you have the prima secundae and the secunda secundae. And so the prima secundae is traditionally what we call fundamental moral theology that just lays out this is the structure, this is the framework of Catholic or Christian moral theology. And so he starts his treatment of what moral theology is in the same way that Aristotle starts the Nicomachean Ethics, and that is the question of our final end. And so what Aristotle does in the Nicomachean Ethics, he starts with this idea of realizing that Whenever we act, we act with a goal in mind. So when I see somebody doing an action, like when a student gets up out of bed and then comes to my class, et cetera, I can look at that action of why did you get out of bed? And to say that an act has a goal or an end is to say if I ask you why did you do that, you can give me an answer. Mm -hmm. You may have to think about it sometimes. So why did you get out of bed to come to class? Why did you come to class? Because I want to pass the class. Why do you want to pass the class? Because I want to get ordained. Why do you want to get ordained? You can keep going down the line. And we see that these goals build on one another. But if we play this two-year-old game of why, 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 why did you do this? Mm -hmm. Eventually, we're going to hit a stopping point. Eventually, we're going to answer, why did I do this? Just because or I don't I don't know because I want to be happy and so this is the idea of Aristotle is that ultimately every at least freely chosen act that we're doing that we're Mm -hmm. doing freely we're doing because we're all seeking happiness and both St. Thomas and Aristotle are going to say that this desire for happiness is natural and there's so many ways we use the term natural but in this case what they mean by it is that we can't choose otherwise Mm -hmm. we're free to choose so many things in life but we can't choose the fact that we seek happiness Mm -hmm. god made us to seek happiness and so aristotle i love it he talks about this he's like if we're all aiming for this if we're all aiming for happiness wouldn't we do well to stop and examine what happiness is Mm -hmm. because people have so many different ideas of happiness and so if we're all doing this, wouldn't it be better to do it well? And so what does true happiness consist in? And so Aristotle goes through different conceptions of happiness, but he ultimately lands on the same answer that Thomas Aquinas lands on, and that is happiness is contemplation. Now, I'm not mm. going to dive too deeply into that for now, and Aristotle is going to understand that slightly different than Thomas. There's going to be a lot of similarities there. 
But ultimately, we're talking about loving union with God. Mm -hmm. And so Thomas is going to understand, right, that we have these infinite desires. And so we were made for the infinite, Mm -hmm. and only the infinite will satisfy. So St. Augustine, right, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O God. And so all of our life is ordered to this end or this goal. So we've got these two different visions of uh, where does the morality come from? Does it come from God's will? Does it come from God's wisdom? Um, Now sort of taking that next step, we say, okay, well, how do we human beings uh, uh, order our moral lives towards uh, being in harmony with, uh, as you say, preferably as Catholics, the second vision that you were describing, morality um, based on God's wisdom. And so the sort of two systems... um, or ways of thinking about this that have developed. Uh, the first one's often called a morality of obligation, um, and the second, uh, morality of happy happiness. Um, let's uh, let's bring this this conversation about um, these two different moral visions back to our original idea of sin. So, we, we defined sin earlier. Now we have these two different ways of thinking about uh, morality and and the Catholic Church's prioritizing the second one that you you referenced um let's bring these two together what what then do we do um with with these two different moral visions these moral frameworks in order to think about sin how do we avoid sin um right so again if we start back with that definition of sin being anything that goes against the eternal law right mm-hmm. so an act word desire etc against the eternal law So if we understand the law that we're violating as arbitrary rules given by God, what happens to sin in this framework? So we tend to view sin merely in legalistic terms. So it's the violation of a law. And then, of course, if I violate a law, I'm punished. But wait, I might not be punished if I can show that I'm not guilty for it. So that means culpability comes into play. So I think the three main... Aspects of sin that are important in this framework is violation of a law, culpability, and punishment. Now, nobody likes punishment, right? And we especially don't like punishment if we think we are being punished for violating an arbitrary rule, a rule that was totally unfair. And so when we commit a sin where we know that we definitely broke the rule, Mm -hmm. we're going to look for a way to show that we're not culpable so that we can avoid punishment. And conveniently, the catechism gives us a number of possibilities. So if we look at the church's teaching, we can kind of look at conscience, but I'm going to focus on the catechism on mortal sin. So when the catechism teaches on mortal sin, it says there are three conditions for a mortal sin. So the first is grave matter. So these are the examples I'm saying of like, nope, I know that I broke the rule. Mm -hmm. So I can't show that there's no grave matter. I know that I broke the rule. But then the church says there must be full knowledge and full consent. And if I can show that one of those is not true, then I'm no longer culpable. There's no punishment. And so I'm good. And so this is where you get caught up in showing that somebody's not fully free. And I see the most common examples here would be sins that have a compulsive characteristic to them. So, I mean, the clear one is something like drug addiction, but people will also point to things like the use of pornography. And so because this becomes somewhat compulsive, the person's freedom is limited. Therefore, they are not culpable. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they're good to go. Mm -hmm. And another one would be ignorance. So let's say somebody doesn't know about the church's teaching on contraception or sterilization, something like that. They didn't know, so they can, in good conscience, continue to do the acts they're doing because they're not culpable for having done that act. And so this is what happens to sin in this view, is we're always looking for a way out of culpability. Um, So why why does the church want us to think in terms of morality coming out of God's wisdom? especially in light of one thing that the Catholic Church is known for is we've got a lot of laws, right? We have this whole thing called canon law, mm-hmm. right? I don't think Protestants have canon law. So on the it's, it seems a little schizophrenic that the church is saying, hey, think about the morality, you know, in terms of virtue, in terms of, of teleology, in terms of coming out of God's wisdom. But then we're going to give you this whole set of rules about you, what you have to follow, what you can and can't do, and all these categories and definitions and distinctions. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that? I mean, is that sort of uh, sort of contradictory message that we're being given, or or 
how do we think about those is, yes, think about the moral life in this way, but we're also going to have a bunch of laws as well. Mm -hmm. So I think we can look at a couple human examples that point to this, because there's a tendency when we turn our attention to morality to think that rules are an impediment or an obstacle to my freedom, and that if something is difficult or challenging, it must not be good for me. And so one example that I often use this class is my mother was a music teacher, and so I began to learn piano at a very young age. And, and so I started to learn the rules of music. And when you first begin to learn piano, these rules can feel really constricting. So there's like a certain bodily posture, and your fingers are hold in a certain posture, and then you have to play certain notes together with other notes. But for me, the most challenging rule or restriction was the metronome. Mm. So if you're not familiar with a metronome, most metronomes now with electric keyboards are built into the system. Mm. But I had this little pyramid-shaped torture device sitting <laughs> on my piano that just <coughs> ticks back and forth. Tick, tock, tick, mm -hmm. tock. And so it keeps time. And so when I played music, I had to turn the metronome at a certain speed that was indicated by the piece of music I was playing. And if I played too fast or slow and not according to the beat of the metronome, I had mm -hmm. to start over. And so I would do this. And then when my mom would walk out of the room, I would turn the metronome off and just play with this great freedom, right? Just like right. however my emotions like <laughs> felt in the moment I was going to play mm -hmm. fast or slow. And it felt really great in the moment. And then what happened is mm -hmm. I grew up and for the first time in my life, I had opportunities to play music with other people. And I found myself incapable of doing that mm. activity because I couldn't keep time. And if you can't keep time, you can't play music with other people. And so what I viewed as a restriction of my freedom as a child and this mm -hmm. rule that I had to follow to play at a certain pace, right, I came to realize was actually ordered to a greater freedom, which is this capacity to play music and create beautiful music with other people. Mm. That, that example makes me think if you've ever seen the movie Seven, Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. So Morgan Freeman, you know, he's like the New York City cop who's on the verge of retirement. He's seen it all. Uh, you know, lives in this sort of grimy apartment and, you know, he's jaded and just he wants out. Um, and every night he comes home and as he goes to sleep, he turns on a metronome, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this man who wakes up every day as a New York City cop. He has no idea what his life is going to bring. Um, there's There's no regular day-to-day, -day, you know, I'm going to the office and do this. He could have to deal with a murderer. He could deal with five murders. Who knows? And so I always think of that as the metronome is the thing that comes home and gives him that consistency, gives him a point um, uh, in, in, in his chaos, a, a point of, of stability, of mm -hmm. centrality that allows him to sort of uh, center his life in a way or, or his day around that stability. Um, and so that metronome in story you're talking about gives us gives me that image of the 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 rules that give us the stability that allow us to then go out into our days. Is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah, and I think if we take a couple more human examples to juxtapose this view of a framework of wisdom and a mm -hmm. framework of God's arbitrary will. So if I go back to what I was saying before of like times where we know that we violated the law. So then we're going to look and see to if I had full consent and full knowledge. And mm -hmm. if I can show that I didn't have full knowledge or full consent, that I'm good to go. I'll hear seminarians saying like, oh, he's good, you know, because he wasn't fully free when he did this action. Mm. And so one of the examples I bring up with full knowledge is there's a show that used to be on TLC called A Thousand Pound Sisters. Have you mm. ever seen that show, Stuart? I've seen commercials for it. There's a mm -hmm. bunch of those shows. So yeah, they all so kind of run together. I've never brain. actually seen an episode yeah. of the show, but a clip popped up on <clears> YouTube, <throat> and I was just intrigued by the name. What What is a thousand pound sisters mean right. and so it means what i think you would think it would mean two sisters who if you combine their weight mm -hmm. weigh over a thousand pounds right. so one of them weighs 600 some pounds and one of them weighs 400 some pounds and the clip that i happen to see shows these two young women i think maybe in their 30s going to the doctor and they share with the doctor that as children as young girls who were already obese their mother told them we can eat whatever we want as long as we wash it down with a Diet Coke. The Diet Coke will cancel out the calories. Huh. So the doctor looks at them and he says, okay, but 
do you, do you believe that now? Like, how's that working out right. for you? You know, and they have to look at their body and be like, okay, I, I guess I have to now admit that it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. But let's say these girls, when they were nine years old, went to that doctor mm-hmm. and shared with them what they understood to be the correct thing when it came to eating. Would a good doctor look at them and say, oh, you didn't know any better. You're mm-hmm. good to go. Go home. Yeah. Right? Because they didn't. You don't understand how calories work as a child. Your mom tells you this is how they work, and you follow that. Mm-hmm. And so a good physician doesn't say, oh, you're good to go because it's not your fault. You aren't guilty with this. A right. good, he also doesn't look at them and say, shame on you, you horrible, evil human being for having overeaten your whole life. He says, oh, my daughter, you've been deceived, my mm-hmm. child. You yeah. know, let me show you a better way. And so this is the difference between viewing morality as just arbitrary hoops that we have to jump through and rules that are ordered to our flourishing. So just like the rules surrounding eating and good diet are ordered to our flourishing, the church's teaching is ordered to our flourishing. So even in the case where someone is acting out of ignorance, it's not a question of like culpability and shame. It's saying you're missing out on something, something Mm. of the good life. Let me show you the way. And the way that you're sort of talking about is something I don't I don't think we've brought forth but yet, but there's the idea of virtues that oftentimes uh, in, in this second model that you're talking about, uh, often called morality of happiness, that, that the idea is rather than sort of uh, blindly or unwillingly following certain laws, the idea is what sort of can lead us in, or at least set us in the right direction towards that human flourishing is the idea of virtues. So, and this is a term that's, again, used a lot in a sort of popular general context, but um, that context misses the sort of deep, rich uh, uh, definition as understood in moral theology. So what are the virtues? How do we understand virtues uh, differently than the way virtue is used in our common language? And, and how does virtue help us get to that, that uh, uh, place that we're trying to get to, that telos, um, and how are virtues the way that help us there? Right. So let's start with just two basic definitions of virtue. One thing we could say, the simple one that most people know is a virtue is a habit of doing the good. And maybe in a bit we'll have a chance to draw that out and contrast that with misunderstandings. Another thing is oftentimes it is said, and this is following Aristotle, that virtue is doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. Now, if we're going to take the idea of virtue, I think it's good to talk about virtue in relation to the rules we've just been talking about, and then um, talk about the transformation that takes place in the person who practices virtue. So first to talk about virtue in relation to the rules, because when we say that the authentic Catholic moral tradition is a morality of happiness or a virtue ethics tradition, this doesn't do away with the idea of rules or laws but it puts them in their proper place. So if we're understanding laws merely as rules, as thou shalt not, the church has a fuller understanding of law, but if we're talking about rules, thou shalt not, in a morality of happiness, those still exist, but they aren't the end-all, be-all. In the first framework we looked at, those are everything. It's Mm -hmm. all or nothing. It's how you get into heaven. In a framework of the morality of happiness, they're the starting point. An example I give is from basketball, because... We are both from the great state of Kansas, right? Yeah, great basketball tradition there. And so I'll often ask my students very simple questions. So even if you aren't a big fan of the game of basketball, I think you can follow these questions. If someone does not know the rules of basketball and does not follow the rules of basketball, do they have any chance of being a great player? No, not a chance. But then there's a second question. If somebody knows all of the rules of basketball and follows them perfectly, are they going to be a great player? I don't know. It's not enough information, right? We don't look at like a LeBron James or Michael Michael Jordan and say, oh, these were the best rule followers. Mm -hmm. Like Michael Jordan, he never double dribbled. He never spent more than three seconds in the lane, right? We don't celebrate them because they followed the rules. So the rules Mm -hmm. are necessary, Mm -hmm. but they're a bare minimum. They're a starting point. I remember when I used to teach high school in New York City, my students would be like, yo, Miss Riker, like, I'm a good person. I don't kill anybody. I don't steal. And I, like, sit there and, like, start the slow clap, you know? <laughs> like, kind of, like, cynically or sarcastically saying, good right. job. Right. And I'd say, no, actually, good job. I really am happy that right. you are, because we're in New York City, right? I have, some, you know, all kinds of students. And True. so I'm grateful that that's not your life. Right. But if that's your bar, that's so 
sad, yeah. right? So the thou shalt not, so those are the bare minimum. Virtue is the maximum. These are what we're striving for and the excellence. And so what I want to say about virtue next is in relation to something that came up when I laid out the framework of the morality of obligation, because I think this is one of the strongest objectives, objections we as Catholics have to respond to. So the claim I've been making is that the church's moral teaching is ordered to my flourishing, that every element of the moral law is ordered to my flourishing. So the question we have to answer is, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Why doesn't it feel that way? So this is what we talked about of like everything good in life makes you fatter is condemned by the Mm -hmm. Catholic Church. It feels like God gave us all of these desires and then he commands us not to act on them. So if this is supposedly ordered to my flourishing, shouldn't it be like rainbows and sprinkles and feel good the whole way? And so this is where if I go give a talk anywhere, Stuart, I will give them the first half of this quotation from St. Augustine. Lord, make me chaste, and everyone finishes the line, but not yet. Everyone knows this quotation from St. Augustine. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. I wish more people knew what St. Augustine says one book later in the Confessions. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how, God, you have taken these desires away from me, and you yourself have entered in, like you who are true sweetness. And he talks about how he just no longer has any desire to scratch that burning itch of lust. It just doesn't interest him. Mm -hmm. And so the first quotation, Lord, make me chase, not yet speaks to human reality. I think most of us have been there, whether or not it's with chastity, it's with some element of the church's teaching that when we set out to live the moral life, it doesn't feel good. And we're like, "Mm, I wish I could take it back and go back to this time when I didn't know anything about it and just had fun. Mm -hmm. So what happened to St. Augustine between the time when he doesn't want to live chastity and when he suddenly delights in it and can't imagine the time where he was like chasing after lust? And the answer is grace and virtue. Mm -hmm. So this is what virtue does in us. Virtue is the state where we not only do the good, but we delight in doing the good. So St. Thomas and following Aristotle is going to lay out different stages. So too often people just know virtue and vice. And they think that vice is when we do bad and virtue is when we do good. That's not virtue and vice. So in between those two stages, you have vice and then what's called incontinence and continence and then virtue. And then they'll even add heroic virtue and almost like bestiality or bestial vice in between Mm -hmm. them. But let's just focus on the four in the middle there. So vice is not just when we do evil. Vice is when we do evil, we delight in evil, and see evil as good. Mm -hmm. Most of us, for much of our lives, find ourselves in the state of incontinence and continence. That is where we know what the good is. We recognize the good is good. But there's a battle. The struggle is real. So I know the good I'm supposed to do, but I find myself not doing it, as St. Paul says. So incontinence is where we're in the struggle, but we often lose the battle. Continence is where we're struggling, but we often win the battle. And so this is St. Augustine when he's saying, Lord, make me chase, but not yet. He's in one of those two stages. If he's often falling into sin, he's in continence, incontinence. If he's often winning the battle, he is in the state of continence. And so he knows what the good is, but it doesn't feel good yet. And as we begin to form a habit of doing the good, we are transformed such that there's no longer this great battle inside of us. And when we do the good, we delight in doing the good. And that's what happens to Augustine one book later when he says, I no longer feel this like burning itch of lust. And that's actually the full quote, right? Augustine doesn't say, Lord, grant me chastity, but not yet. He says, Lord, grant me chastity and continence. Mm -hmm. So even he is including both of those in there. Um, So virtues and vices, towards the end of your answer there, you you touch on the idea of vices, but I think we should explore that a little more deeply. So vices are the the flip side of the the virtue coin. Let's let's talk about that. Um, And can we give sort of concrete examples of what do we mean by vices? Right, so... I think what I'd like to do here is take vice. Um, We often speak of the seven deadly sins, or in the East we have the tradition of the eight evil thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have things like pride, lust, envy, gluttony, etc., anger. But I would like to look at these 
in terms of capacity. So I've been speaking of transformation that takes place in the person. And so to go back to these two frameworks we've been talking about, we've been talking about them in relation to the law, but I want to look at what heaven looks like in these frameworks. And too often people think of heaven's, heaven merely in terms of a place. And I'm not saying we can't think of heaven in terms of a place, because if we're going to have a resurrected body, I assume these material bodies are going to take up space mm-hmm. and need a place. Right. But when we reduce our conception of heaven to a place, what happens is we can see that I can live a terrible life and not follow the rules, and then either have a deathbed conversion or get before St. Peter at the pearly gates and say, Peter, let me in, you know, like, I didn't know the law, or I tried, and it was really hard, have mercy on me. Peter lets us in, and then we enjoy the party in the sky. We can get into the place. Like, there's no problem with that. We're like, okay, I can see how that can work. But what if we think of heaven in terms of an activity? So let's pretend that heaven was running a marathon. I know that this is probably really hard for most of our viewers to imagine, right? But let's say that like our ultimate end in life, all of us were designed to run the eternal marathon. I don't think anybody would be Christian if this was the case, maybe a few people, but (laughs) so let's say I'm a couch potato. The first time I get up and run, it's going to feel terrible. Mm -hmm. And maybe I try it a couple times and I'm like, oh, this running thing's not for me or my genetics are bad. I probably don't have the same genetics as somebody else. This hurts my legs or my knees. So I'm going to give up. So I decide to spend the rest of my life binge watching Netflix. So this would be an example of vice. Mm -hmm. And I get to heaven. And so I do the same thing we just talked about. I tell Peter or Jesus, whoever's standing there, like, have mercy. I didn't know or I did know, but it was hard. I think I had an injury. I was sick. It wasn't my fault. Mm. And so St. Peter lets me into heaven. But heaven is running a marathon. I'm going to hate it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be incapable of it, or I'm going to try it, and I'm going to hate it. This is the premise of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, this idea that people get on this bus and they go to heaven, and in the book, most of them choose to go back. Mm-hmm. And they choose to go back, usually because of vice, because we have an attachment to evil, and we find ourselves incapable of doing the good. So just like the person who's the couch potato and gets to heaven, they aren't going to be able to delight in the activity of heaven, which is running a marathon. So here's where we might be able to conceive of purgatory, as you could either on this earth go through the painful process of running every day for several months when it hurts and when it doesn't feel good. And I don't know if you've ever been a runner, Stu. I've gone from the place of like not being a runner to being Mm -hmm. a runner. And it doesn't feel good, probably for months at a time. Mm -hmm. But it's true that you can get your body to a point where it feels good to run. And where if you go more than a few days without running, you're like, oh, I need to get back to that, right? Mm. So you've like transformed yourself such that what is good for you feels good. Whereas for the couch potato, what is bad for you feels good. Mm -hmm. And what is good for you running feels bad. And so the movement from vice to virtue is like this movement from being a couch potato to from a marathon runner, where we transform from a place where what is bad for us feels good to a place where what is good for us feels good. And this is a requirement because if we think of heaven as an activity, this act of contemplation, this loving union with God, we need to prepare ourselves and enable ourselves with the help of God's grace. There's going to be a lot of receptivity here for this activity. And so vice is the contrary of that. Vice is where we are totally incapable of the activity that we are ultimately made for, which is loving union with God, total gift of self, holiness. There's so many ways that you can put it. And so as we go through this process of transformation from vice to virtue, we begin to be capable of what we were made for, which is loving union with God, love of God, and love of neighbor. So we've talked about a lot of things today. We've talked about Aristotle and Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, and we've defined terms, and we've talked about different frameworks and virtues and vices. But let's let's sort of get really nitty-gritty, really concrete. You've got a mother raising three kids, working a job, uh, you know, tension with her husband, trying to navigate the world. Thanksgiving's coming up. How should she be thinking about the moral life? How do we we take this abstraction that we've been talking about and make it really concrete for the Catholic in the pew? I think so we have... 
all these lists of virtues. So you asked about them in the beginning and I didn't give the list. So we typically speak of there being four cardinal virtues and three theological virtues. So the four cardinal virtues are prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. And the word cardinal there isn't like the cardinals in the church or the cardinal the bird. The word there comes from the word for hinge. So these are the hinge virtues. So both that all of these other sub virtues that exist are sub parts of these cardinal virtues and the idea that the entirety of the moral life hinges upon these virtues. And so it's not to say that these four cardinal virtues and the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love are the only virtues, but that all the other virtues patience, et cetera, are like little pieces. They fall under a part of temperance. They're a part of fortitude. They're a part of faith, hope, love, et cetera. So there are so many virtues out there. And so when we begin to look at the list, it can feel overwhelming. Where do I begin? There can be this sort of paralysis. And so what I suggest is focus on a weakness. Mm -hmm. Most of us can identify a characteristic fault that we have. If you can't, ask your spouse. And I guarantee (laughs) you that they can tell you what your characteristic fault is, what your weakness is. And start with that one. And we spoke about how a virtue is a habit. So that's going to take a while for this habit to form and for this transformation to take place. Sometimes people say it takes 30 days to develop a habit. I think there's some wisdom in that, but I think it also depends on how deeply ingrained the contrary habit is. That is, if you have a deeply ingrained vice, it's going to take even longer for the virtue to take root. So pick one virtue that is the opposite of the vice you have. Mm -hmm. So if you are intemperate when it comes to food, you're a total glutton, right? Start working on that virtue. Mm -hmm. Pick it for a month. One thing that I often encourage people to do is St. Jose Maria Escrivá has these books, The Way, Furrow, and The Forge. They're often sold as a little three-pack set together. And he doesn't have, I think, every single virtue in there, but he has so many virtues in there. He'll have a chapter on humility. And the chapter on humility is just a set of one-liners, just all these quotations on humility. And so what I'll do, if I want to work on humility this month, I'll keep that book with the chapter on humility by my bed. And in the morning, I'll wake up and I'll read a line. And maybe that line hits me, maybe it doesn't. Maybe I read three or four or five lines and then something hits me and I'm like, oh, I need to work on this area of humility. And so I'll keep that with me throughout the day. And maybe I'll keep that with me throughout the next week or maybe the next day I'll need another line on humility and he'll give me another way of practicing humility or another way of practicing on temperance. And so I encourage people to remember, as I said towards the beginning of this, that this is a journey. Too often we think of perfection as something static. It's all or nothing. That's true if we think of morality as a list of rules. Tomorrow I can avoid all the thou shalt not. So in that sense, I would be perfect. Mm -hmm. Like we said, that's the bare minimum. Charity knows no maximum. There's no bounds or limit to how much we can grow in charity. So this is the work of the rest of our life. And so I say this to remind ourselves that like, you aren't going to be perfect tomorrow or the next day. So have patience for yourself. It's okay to pick one thing. Don't be overwhelmed by all the virtues that you need to grow in, right? Or all the vices you're struggling with. Pick one and focus on that one for 30 days. See where you are at 30 days. If you feel like you've made some progress, then see where else you can grow and turn to something else. Uh, Final question. Uh, I usually like to end on a note of hope. Uh, We are a people of hope, specifically hope in the resurrection. Um, So as you look to the future and and you think about the ways in which the concept of sin is dismissed, as I talked about earlier, as oppressive or irrelevant, Uh, The people today in our society and in our church are acting out of that uh, moral sense that you talked about, that that morality is based on God's arbitrary will rather than God's wisdom and his desire for us to live a flourishing life. Um, When you look to the future, what what gives you hope that, that, um, that, that people in the church and in our society can maybe reorient their thinking and just Think about sin, thinking about moral frameworks in a different way, a better way, a way that will lead to a flourishing life. I mean, if we're talking about moral frameworks, I am, I am hopeful for where the Catholic Church is going. Vatican, the Second Vatican Council called for a renewal in moral theology. So we're talking years 1962 to 1965. But then, so we had this impetus, let's renew moral theology. And there were things that needed to be renewed because even though it wasn't necessarily the official teaching of the church, 
so much of the way moral theology was being presented, even in seminaries, was this framework of the morality of obligation. Mm -hmm. So we needed a renewal. And then what happened four years later in 1969, Humanae Vitae, and all of the church's efforts when it came to moral teaching was centered around debate on the question of contraception. Mm -hmm. And so this renewal was halted. But I've seen in the last decade or two it being brought up again. And so I am encouraged mm -hmm. by, I think we're going back to the renewal that Vatican II intended, and we're finally kind of like bringing it to fruition. But then what I see on the ground, my hope is the saints or mm -hmm. the saints in the making. And so I think just like if we go back to the metaphor of running, right? If I know that running would be a good part of my life, but if I try running and it is painful and it hurts, I'm never going to get past that hurdle. Mm -hmm. So I need to meet somebody who's, I don't know, an ultra marathoner. But I, what's most helpful is an ultra marathoner who used to be a couch potato. And they're like, right. I've been where you've been. And mm -hmm. I know, trust me, I never thought I would be someone who liked running, but here I am, right? And so this is like St. Augustine, when he's like not ready to give it up, he needs to see a saint who's like, I've been where you've been. Mm -hmm. I know, right? That person who can encourage you to take that leap of faith. Because if you begin to live the church's moral teaching, tomorrow I'm telling you it's not going to feel good. Right. Just like it's not going to feel good to get up and do your first run. And so you need to see that person who sparks in you that it's worth going through the difficulty because they have something that I have never had before. Mm -hmm. And for him, that was Antony of Egypt, right? He read the, the life of Antony running out into the 4th century the Egyptian desert and uh, uh, harnessing those, those passions that, that Augustine had uh, indulged in for so many years. So, St. Anthony, pray for us. Dr. Riker, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Dr. Stewart. Oh.